Well, as uh, we've done last week and we'll continue to do through the series, we're going to uh, give a, an opportunity for some of the questions that you sent in to be uh, talked about right here live. So, Mark, I never thought I'd say this to you in front of a group of people, but let's talk about sex. <laughs> yes. Um, so, <laughs> now, a couple, of, a couple of good questions came in, uh, quite a few, but a few themes. And so I want to make sure and hit some of those. And I'll change the wording of some of these so nobody gets outed, particularly on the first one. Uh, what, if, what if a person is sitting in the room going, Okay, my life isn't, isn't right now aligning with God's standards for sex, and I'm, I'm hearing you. What do I do? Yeah, here's the biggest piece of grace followed by truth. Piece of grace is you're not defined by your worst moment. God didn't save you and then say, don't do it again. God saved you in a broken state, and he's sanctifying your life, which means you were going to make some horrible choices. But they weren't accidents. You made them, right? So what I've always encouraged people to do when they get to this moment that they're really broken by their sin is take the 51st Psalm, which was David's song of lament when he was caught in his adultery, and make that your prayer. Rewrite that prayer in your own words. When David says, do not take me from my salvation, have a moment with God where you simply, sincerely fall before your God in his mercy. The, the, the worst thing you can do is walk out and say, I can't win this game, I'm out. That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. You're not defined by your worst moment. You're defined by his mercy and grace. Seek it. And when it becomes valuable to you, the things of flesh do fade away. And you will not be sinless. You will sin less when you know the mercy of your God. Know your Father intimately. Start with Psalm 51. See if that doesn't speak to what your heart is crying out for. Good. So connecting Michael's sermon last week on the Bible, we came across something that uh, kind of uh, struck us. So knowing God... And knowing the depth of God, how does that practically help us overcome lustful desires and opportunities? Yeah, and this is something we've been talking about all week, and as we've talked about all the different questions that came in. Uh, last week, we were, we were praying with the elders before uh, the service, and one of our elders, Peter Buckland, was in there with us, and we were talking about, uh, you remember the theme last week was, you know, somebody finds the scriptures irrelevant, and the whole idea was, well, if we trust the scriptures enough to live them out, then their power is made evident in our lives. People notice that, and then we have something to say. And uh, Peter Buckland mentioned that when he deals with people who are struggling with sexual sin specifically, and I think he was true more broadly, but specifically he was talking about sexual sin, his first thing he says to them, and this is a guy who's read more counseling books than I've seen in my lifetime and knows all the techniques and all of the theories, and still he said the first thing he says to someone in a situation like that is, you must establish a daily habit of meaningful personal Bible study for 45 minutes to an hour. And I'm thinking, wow, that's not where I expected him to go. And he said, all those words he chose intentionally. A daily habit of some sort of Bible study that is meaningful to you for 45 minutes to half an hour. And he said, he promises people that if they will do this, they can be free of their sexual temptation. They can be free of, of giving in to sexual temptation on a regular basis within three days. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know Peter Buckland to exaggerate, but that is an intense promise. But no, he said that's the promise he makes. That if they, well, part of it is, you know, if you're spending time studying the Word, you got less time to sin. <laughs> but there's also a sense in which, you know, you're rewiring your brain and you're allowing, you're allowing the Scripture to sink in. And Mark and I both had to admit to each other and to Peter, like, that's not the first thing that we would necessarily say to someone. And yet, um, that was a way in which, yeah, these two things connect. Yeah, um, and I believe that's true. I think we both admitted one of the things that's failed in our counsel to people has been that we're, we use a 10-foot pole theology. We'll shut off your computer and get rid of cable and do all those things. The thoughts 
are not external thoughts that cause us to lust and sin. It's our selfish desires of war within us. Those are just methods by which we're gratified. And so I really appreciate Peter doing that and focusing myself on more intentionally being in the Word to protect my own heart has been a blessing seven days later. Yeah. Good, yeah. So another, another um, kind of set of questions that's coming in. So I'm going to throw them out there and you can speak to each and all of them. Um, so there was one, you know, when do, what's the proper time to talk to my kids about sex in today's culture? And then how do we protect our children and grandchildren from the, when it, when it comes to sexual issues, given all that you're talking about about our culture? So what are some things that you would, ways you would, you have a, you know, a child that just graduated college? And you got one who's right there in the middle of, of the growing up years. So what do you say to that? Yeah, the biggest mistake I've made as a parent is making assumptions that if there's no outward sign of impurity, they must be okay. Um, so let me give you a provocative statement. If you want to be a cool parent, you're leaving your kids exposed. If you want to be the stereotype parent that they roll their eyes at, welcome to godly parenting. You have to have conversations my son and I, uh, Braden, I take him to school every morning, and he, we have a different radio station we listen to every morning. One day it's country, one day it's pop or whatever, and every now and then something will come on the radio, and I'll just say to him, what's that about? And he'll kind of look at me and get embarrassed, and he doesn't want to talk to his dad, but I love to point out to him the truth. And I do it with a, this will shock all of you, a sarcastic sense of humor. But what I'm trying to get him to do is, what you're listening to is not true, it's catchy, it's quirky, it's popular, but it's unholy. And without ruining everything, I don't say that we have a debrief after every sitcom you watch, but we have to speak to our children. I, I'm in firm belief. 90% of the messages my sons hear are not of God. And if I'm not speaking into them what I know to be true, and I'm one of the reliable sources in their life, so how old does a child need to be till you start having conversations about sex? Um, there's no flat answer. Like, how old does a kid need to be before they're ready to be baptized? It depends on the child's awareness, the, the call of God on their heart. And so I would just encourage you, if you're not having conversations with your, your children, they're hearing it at school. They're hearing it on the playground. They're hearing it in music, television, on YouTube. At that moment in time, who's the parent? Who's the grandparent? Who's the godly advisor? We must speak up or they're going to hear messages and assume if dad's not correcting it or mom's not dealing with it, then that must be right. And so this is just an admonition to the church. Let's be the parents and grandparents God's called us to be. Um, let's, say, let's say I'm sitting in the room and I'm, I'm going guilty right now, mm-hmm. not, not living according to, to, to what God wants, and, and I need some help knowing what to do about it. Yeah. I think the, the biggest thing that Satan uses against us is silence and shame. And the more that you overcome, I know... Some of us are calculating right now, if I said what really happened, I would lose everything. You've probably already lost everything by the fact that you're disconnected from the people you say you love. So it's empty, right? It's shallow. And so what I've done in the past, and in my own personal failures, and in dealing with other men that are going through the same thing, is I always encourage them to read the 51st Psalm, and to read it, and pray it, and rewrite it, and spend time in it. It's David's lament when he committed adultery. It's his cry out to God to say, God, if you crushed me, it would be perfect. But I want more. He says, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. It goes back to knowing who God is. We realize when we see ourselves in the reflection of God's eyes, we understand what we've done. And the weight of that either crushes us or brings us to our knees before God. 
So take the 51st Psalm, memorize it, rewrite it, place your story in there. The same God who forgave David and restored him is the same God. You are not defined by your worst moment. And some of you say, but I was a believer when I did it. I know. God is far less worried about your perfection than you are. Satan's the one who uses our lack of perfection against us. Isn't our God merciful and graceful? And if we will repent, he is faithful to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But let the weight of your shame bring you to your knees. And when that happens, then God frees you from that. And we're not, listen, Michael and I aren't naive. We realize a majority of this room has been struck today. The fact that God doesn't want us living the way we've chosen to live. Amen? And so because of that, let's search for freedom and find the mercy of God that we can then offer to other people. Michael, the, one of the questions that came up was an experience that you and I have been sharing all week long. When I talk about knowing God and I don't give a bunch of practical little steps in light of what you talk about the relevancy of God's word, uh, why don't you share with them something we learned last week that's changed? Yeah, so we had a conversation. Uh, each, uh, each morning before we start our services, uh, we sit with the elders and they pray over the morning and the message and different things. And we were talking last week about the series, and, and last week's topic was uh, you know, how do I show the relevance of God's Word? We talked about living it out with our lives. And then, of course, today's is, is having to do with, with sexual ethics and sexual holiness and those different things. And Peter Buckle, one of our elders, said something to Mark and I that caught both of us off guard. And we were a little embarrassed that it caught us off guard. But he said that whenever people come to him expressing a desire to grow in sexual holiness, there's some stronghold that sin has on their life, whether it's in their minds or with their bodies or whatever. And uh, he, he shared what he first tells them every time. And keep in mind, this is a guy who's read more counseling books than we've, most of us have even seen, and he knows all the theories and all of the wisdom, and he has a lot of practical tips and tools. He said the first thing he says to them is, you must establish a daily habit of meaningful Bible study for 45 minutes to an hour. And he chose every portion of that intentionally. It's got to be a regular habit. It's got to be some form of Bible study that is personally meaningful to you doesn't have to be the same thing somebody else would do, but a way of engaging God's word that is meaningful to you and that it's done for a period of 45 minutes to an hour every day. And he said, if you do this, and I'm thinking, man, this sounds like an exaggeration, but he doesn't exaggerate. And what he promises people is you can be, for the most part, free from this sin in the sense that you won't find yourself falling again and again. You can be free from this sin in three days if you establish and maintain a daily habit of, of regularly reading God's word. And that was so powerful to Mark and I because that's not necessarily where I would have started, though it's where I'll start every time now, that if we allow God that much of our... And part of it, he said, is if you're spending 45 minutes to an hour reading the Bible, you've got less time to sin. <laughs> but um, <laughs> truth to that. But also, he, it just rewiring our minds in line with God's truth. And it was so powerful for both Mark and I yeah. to hear. Another one that came in, and once again, love the honesty of this question, was... Um, okay, so I'm in a relationship, I'm an adult, I'm in a relationship with a person. Is it not better for me to go ahead and engage sexually with this person that I'm committed to in love and may marry as opposed to just getting, getting married so that I can have sex the right way and then just getting divorced again like has happened in the past? Yeah. Um, I have to speak direct. So whoever wrote these questions, please, this isn't an attack on you personally. Your, your use of the word commitment is suspect to me. If sex is the thing that allows you to find out if you're going to be committed to them, you're not actually committed to them. You're committed to what they're doing for you. So the truth of the statement is, 
if you aren't willing to love this person and choose to love them, even in a period of abstinence, then we're not talking about a love that commits to marriage. We're talking about just someone who you're comfortable with and that you trust that's allowing you to sin. Sex before marriage is without question outside of God's will. And we live in a world today that makes fun of it by saying, well, you know, we need to experience one another before we're sure we're meant for each other. Then all you've decided is you're sexually compatible. You haven't decided you truly love each other. You'd die for each other. You'd serve each other even when you don't get along. So if we need to pop the bubble in this room about what makes a good marriage, it's not sex. It's a commitment to one another. It's respect. It's love. It's holiness. It's purity. And I know I sound like an archaic preacher from the 1700s. But I'm going to tell you the truth if you ask me the question. Uh, you're ruining your relationship going forward by practicing premarital sex. You're not learning anything about each other except at your core, you're both willing to ignore God's truth. And uh, I say that with mercy because remember, you're not defined by your worst moment. You'll really demonstrate your love for each other when you can keep your hands off each other and work toward a relationship that says, I'll choose you the rest of my life no matter. And there were a bunch of questions and we can't answer all of them, so we're going to answer some of them online. If you you look, there's going to be longer answers going to require a little bit more time. We're doing these little one-question videos that are available online if you want to look at them. And some of the questions that are being asked about incompatibility sexually between a husband and wife, we're going to deal with some of those. So if you ask those, don't panic. We just need more time to develop them. Michael, a light question to end the morning. How do we deal with the truth of what I just said on that, over standing on that X over there? And when you see that King David had multiple wives, Solomon had a thousand women in his world between wives and friends. Yeah. <laughs> so how do we deal with polygamy and bigamy in light of what God says in the New Testament? In the Bible, yeah. I, in my, I remember at, as a freshman at Ozark, my, one of my buddies did his Old Testament paper on, he, he, tried to, or he showed that the Old Testament doesn't have a clear negative word against polygamy. And I'm thinking typical Bible college freshman, you know. But at the same time, that's an interesting part of Scripture, that you have polygamy, you have these things. What do we do with this? And the, the, the short answer to it is, Twofold. One, you got to remember that you know God created the world and He had a purpose in mind, and then we we kind of ruined it pretty quick. And the rest of the story of Scripture is God restoring us to a place where we could then flourish in the ways that He intended. And so, as we go along the way, we have a lot of things that don't match God's ideal will because He's taking us to a point where He can uh, bring us to an understanding of what He wants, and then also ability to practice it. So. The fancy term for it is progressive revelation, that God, um, once sin enters the picture, reveals his will to us more clearly over time. And this is what you see with regard to uh, the question of, you know, how many spouses are we supposed to have? Yeah, certain parts of the Old Testament, you have people like Abraham and David and Solomon and different ones with multiple wives, but we're moving toward the New Testament where you have Jesus and Paul reaffirming that marriage is between one husband and one wife. So you have this unfolding revelation that shows us where God was headed, and it really ends up being a return to what he originally intended, Adam and Eve in the garden and those sorts of things. The other thing to notice about this is even as God allows certain things in certain subcultures as he reaches out and moves his mission forward, what you will notice in the Old Testament is that polygamy and bigamy is never a blessed thing. It never like turns out well. And part of how God reveals his will, even in the earlier portions, is by paying attention to the narrative. And if people make choices within the story that then lead to destructive consequences rather than beneficial consequences, this is part of how the Bible tells us this is not a good idea. 
And God knows sometimes if somebody's just going to smack us on the forehead and say, this is not a good idea, we're going to say, oh, yeah, I'll try it for myself. But if he can depict it for us in narrative form, then maybe we'll actually see that it's not just this is bad. It's this actually doesn't work out well for anybody. So when you're reading the Old Testament, be sure to keep reading is the, is the moral of the story. And you'll think come to an understanding of what God wants for, uh, from us and for us on these various things. So one of the ones that's come up consistently has to do with, you know, I'm sitting in the room, and I've so appreciated, we've appreciated the transparency coming through in these. Um, I'm sitting in the room, I'm realizing I'm, 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 not, I'm not living by God's design. What do I do? How do I start over yeah. in this quest for purity? There are two dangerous things you can be living in right now if sexual sin is an issue in your life, shame and silence. Both of those are useful in the hands of Satan, not in the hands of God. Uh, you, we're not people of shame. We must confess our sin. We must repent of it. It's not just feeling sorry, but there's something I've encouraged people over the years when I've struggled with issues myself and I've struggled or worked with men who are struggling with the same issues is Psalm 51 has been enlightening for me. It is David's psalm of regret for his sin with Bathsheba when he committed adultery and the loss of their son. David writes this powerful explanation of not only feeling sorry, but understanding all that God could do and instead relying on the God he knew in his heart to be a merciful, just, forgiving God. So when he cries out statements like, restore unto me the joy of my salvation, it's what I was talking about when I said you've got to know God. When you know who God is, you, don't, you fear him because he could devastate you, but you don't fear him because you know he never would. And so that 51st Psalm, and I know this is going to shock an American culture, memorize it, turn it into a song, rewrite it, Get to know this, these laments in the Psalms about a God who in our worst moment, because here's, here's what I've heard a long time ago, and I believe it. You're not defined by your worst moment. You're defined by the cross. And even if you're a believer and you've sinned and you've crossed the line you never thought you would cross, silence and shame are the two things that will just devastate you. Knowing who God is will drive you to your knees to seek forgiveness, and there you'll find it. So, Michael, one of the things that we happened to us last week in an interaction we had with one of the elders uh, was something enlightening to both of us about how to process sin in our life and how to keep it, that hunger from constantly being on us. Yeah, we've, Mark and I have been talking about this ever since, and so before the services, we'll gather with the elders, and they'll pray over the morning and, and the message and these different things, and we were t- talking about this series. Last week's topic was the relevance of God's Word and the importance of living it out, showing its power in our lives, and then we had this one coming up with um, you know, sexual indiscriminacy, sexual ethics things, and Peter Buckland, one of our elders, said something that we were both kind of embarrassed about the fact that this caught us off guard. But he was saying that when people come to him expressing a desire to grow in sexual holiness, they're dealing with some repeated pattern of sin in their lives, could be something they're doing, could be something they're thinking, whatever. Um, his first thing he says to them, now keep in mind, this is a man who has read more counseling books than most of us have seen. He knows all the theories, all the psychologies, all the tips and tricks. He says, the first thing I say to them is that they must, right now, establish a daily habit of meaningful Bible study for 45 minutes to an hour uh, every single day. And every piece of that he's had is important. It has to be this every single day daily habit thing of meaningful Bible study. Bible study that is meaningful to you in some way. It may not be exactly what I do or what the person sitting next to you does, but that you're engaging the scriptures for 45 minutes to an hour every day. And then he went and said something after this that just shocked me. At first it felt like he was exaggerating, but Peter doesn't really exaggerate. And he said, uh, I promise people that if they'll do this and maintain it, they could be free of this sin 
in the sense that they won't keep falling on their face. They could be free of this sin in three days. And uh, that just it blew our minds. And part of it, he said, is if you're, you know, if you're, uh, if you're spending an hour in the Bible every day, you just have less time to sin. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's got to be a portion of it. But also that rewiring of our brain, of our mind, which then governs our actions, is such a critical piece to living in that grace and mercy and growing in that faithfulness and being capable of doing what you want to do. Yeah. So another set of questions that came in has been coming in throughout the morning having to do with parenting. Earlier we had the general question of, you know, how do we, how do we teach our kids in a, in a hypersexualized yeah. culture? And we had that one specifically, it sounds like parents of teenagers, what about, you know, the issue of boundaries in your own home? Uh, you know, what do you allow? What do you not allow? How do you navigate those things? You want to speak to some of those? Yeah, this is a longer discussion. So the answer I'm going to give is very terse, but it's in, and you'll have to wait for a further explanation. It's, it's coming to us as staff and our counseling that uh, many parents, for fear that if they tell their children no, they'll lose their children, they'll never come back, and they'll go do it anyway. We have an obligation as Christian parents to uphold a standard that honors God in our home. We cannot let children lead our home. They don't know what they're talking about. They're based purely on emotion experience, just like their parents. So if the word of God is going to prevail, it is going to be divisive. Jesus said, I'm going, to, I'm going to divide fathers and sons, mothers and daughters. He said he would do that, not because he wanted to, but because eventually we're going to have to, to lay a standard. If you're a Christian parent and your child is participating in activities, immoral activities at someone else's home, if your question is, how do we reach out to them? You're going to have to have a frank conversation about that's a child. And what you're doing is contributing to the delinquency of a minor. So it's not an easy answer, I get that. And probably my answer is not satisfying to the person who asked. But I'm begging this church, if the word of God's real, let's stand up for it. Which means our children get told no. And they'll live. We all did, didn't we? And if we make mistakes, we show mercy and grace. But we don't lower the standard of God to keep somebody happy. Because they'll never find happiness. So let parents be parents, and the kids are going to just have to learn. Yeah. That's me, isn't it? Okay. <clears throat> yeah, I was waiting for the applause. Uh, okay. In like mind, I answered it last hour. You'll do a better job. Uh, the very similar question is, what if people are sexually active, and someday they're going to get married? Yeah. And their reasoning is, well, we're married in the eyes of the Lord, but someday we're going to get married, so it doesn't matter, does it? Yeah. Gosh, so many different things I would want to say to this, so I'll, I'll definitely try to keep it brief. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about coming out of the combination of these two messages, thinking about the scriptures in general and the fact that the world looks at them and says they're irrelevant and then specific issues like this, I think it's just a fact that the world, worldly wisdom thinks much of itself and little of the scriptures, and the scriptures think much of themselves and wow, little of worldly wisdom. Good. At the end of the day, what I want to say to someone living in this situation, and if I, if I knew you and could look you in the eye, I would say the same thing. I hope you hear me saying it with, with tact and with sensitivity. I just don't think you're as wise as you think you are. I just think at the end of the day that, not I think, I'm pretty confident based on the word, that you're actually engaging in behavior that is going to be destructive to your relationships. Yes. I know you think it doesn't matter, but you, in order to think it doesn't matter, you have to say, I'm smarter than the Bible. I'm smarter than what God has revealed. And a little bit more practically, because maybe you're thinking, I do think I'm smarter than the Bible. What happens in a relationship that engages in sexual activity before you put one of these on is that it becomes the solvent 
so that if you're experiencing conflict, if you are mad at each other, if you are happy about something, you go to sex because it's there and it's available and it either makes you feel like the problems are gone or it gives you something to celebrate with. Then you get on the other side of the ring and all of a sudden what happens is sex doesn't have that same um, effect in your relationship because now you realize you've made a lifelong commitment to one another and you actually have to learn how to develop abilities to deal with some of these issues, but you don't have those abilities. You don't have those skills built up because you, when, at the time in your relationship when you were supposed to be figuring out how to deal with each other apart from the bedroom and actually how to engage conflict, to talk through things and develop relational patterns that are healthy, you weren't. So that's a, like a quick version of at the end of the day, submit to the word of God because it's wise and then also recognize that this plays out in real-time experiences as well. You just will be better off in the long run following what God has revealed. And if you understand why now, awesome. If you don't understand why now, just submit to him and trust in the long run, you're going to be able to recognize that was a good idea in listening to him. That's good. So and some of the others that have come through, and we'll kind of go through some of these relatively quickly. We had a couple about flirting. We had a couple about, you know, whether in, in personally or on, on, online, you know, is it wrong for me to flirt with someone online uh, if I don't mean anything by it, these kind of things. So speak to the issue of flirting and social media and some of those yeah. things. Is it wrong to be flirting with someone who's not your spouse online? Yes. Next question. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it yeah. is. If your spouse doesn't know about it, who are you fooling? If your spouse says, yeah, go ahead, flirt all you want, come see us. Mm-hmm. Because that's not healthy or safe. Yeah. And so social media, you've heard me do this before, it is a bane on society. It allows us to pretend to be someone we're not, project ourselves for other people's approval, just be careful that you're not trying to be who you're not. Be who you are in Christ and let that be enough. That's what the world needs to see. Not your dessert, not your vacation, who you are in Jesus. And if you're flirting with someone who's not your spouse, stop it. Mm-hmm. Last question. And uh, first of all, I want to read this because I want to get the wording right because I'm impressed with whoever wrote this in the wording of it. <laughs> I don't know if impressed is the right word. but um, And secondly, I'm nervous because I can't remember which one of us is going to answer it. So if you send it back to me, I might try to send it back to you. So here's what this person said. So is any sex between married couples okay, or are there limitations to what type of sex one you can have? As long as it is safe, sane, consensual, is it okay? <laughs> sane, that's the word that caught me too. I'm thinking, like, what is insane yeah. sex? You know, I've heard yes. of a lot of different, like, but anyway, I appreciate yeah. your creativity or, or imagination or whatever's going on, yeah. but do you want to speak to this? We were going to ask you to stand, but Michael said no. <laughs> um, okay, I'm glad you, you can laugh. Yeah. <laughs> safe? Between a couple who are both consenting, what happens behind the bedroom door is between you and your spouse. And there's, there's few things in the Bible. God says, don't get into that. And you, you can see what those are. We get asked this a lot. And normally it's because a husband and wife don't agree. Okay? Be very careful that you don't take the marriage bed and turn it into something that pleases one person and not both. So, so love well, serve well. And learn to trust one another. And you can experience most anything in that place, that sacred place. And God is a good God. He's given you permission. But if the other person is adverse to it, discover why before you force that to be a test of whether or not they love you. Because the world has turned 50 shades of nonsense into the standard for everybody. And that's just not it. If it's not safe and loving, and it's not between two people, who desire to give themselves to each other that way, then the encouragement is, don't. There's other ways to express those feelings and all of that. God is a good God, and he's given us a good thing. Don't let the world ruin it.
Amen. Good, good. And uh, we want you to know that we're going to continue to do this throughout this series and also throughout the morning. So on this topic, um, we're going to be taking questions from the later services. So be sure and check in online if you want to hear what uh, some of the other things that were talked about. And be uh, you, you, even if you walk away from this service and think, oh, there was a question, I missed my chance. You didn't. We're going to be doing some shooting of um, Q&A later on uh, in, the, in the days following these sermons as well. So one other thing we wanted to mention today, we did a longer Q&A in, the, was it last fall or the previous, when we did Corrective Lenses, a series on uh, having a, a worldview that's rooted in Christ. We did a Q&A with uh, both of us and Peter Buckland up here, and I think somebody else was Chad up Ragsdale. here as well. Chad Ragsdale was up here. Chad was here. And we talked about a lot of these issues. We had a day when we dealt with uh, sex-type issues. And so we have re, reposted that, I believe, at the top of our podcast page. I'm not particularly technically inclined, so I don't know how that works. But we've made it readily available again so that you can go back and listen to a number of different voices um, with, with common convictions talking to some of these issues. So be sure and check that out as well. Amen.